So, Bruce, the topic for this week relates to the EvoGrid Broad. People who've listened to this podcast for many months will be familiar with the original idea of the EvoGrid and certainly from the first EvoGrid call that we had on BiotaLive with so many participants, it was very much an idea of collaboration. This has really stayed with the idea of the EvoGrid Broad, although you seem to talk a lot more about the EvoGrid Deep. Do you want to compare and contrast the two of them and talk a little bit more about the EvoGrid Broad? Yeah, in fact, the, the Evo Grid Broad kind of came out of uh, my initial thinking of if I was to, to in a sense, re-enter the technology side of artificial life rather than the community organization and, and cheerleading side, which is what I've been in uh, for many years and reading and, and admiring of people's work, trying to get people's work featured, what would I work on? And usually this always comes down to a question for me. Basically, in the beginnings of the virtual world medium, online worlds in the early 90s, I said to myself, what do I work on? If I, do I sit and I write, a, write my own virtual world platform? Well, that might take me two, three, four years, and it might not be a successful platform. And better for me to actually go out and try to get all the platform uh, makers come together in a conference and talk about interoperability and standards and good applications for avatar space, which is what I did in founding the Contact Consortium. So when I started to think of what can I do to, to help the artificial life movement, especially the hobbyist side of things, it came to me that it's all about connection. It's about a grid. It's about you put your simulation together and it, it, it can thrive in its own little way with its own early adopters and it can thrive to an extent until you run out of time, resources, money, and then it, it kind of falls away. And modern modern computing systems are all based on grids. The entire web, you know, the YouTubes and the, the Twitters are networks. So if we could somehow connect the artificial life uh, simulators into the into a network where they become excuse me, where they become citizens and they can exchange objects then there will be all boats will rise. There will be a lot more uh, behavior and a lot more emergent phenomena in these, in these worlds. People will be encouraged to pick up other people's projects when they're, they've run out of steam. Uh, there will be just a tremendous uplift of, of the entire movement. And that would mean, I was thinking of, of Claude's um, University of Paris, Darwin's Park, uh, L-System Forest. And I remember Claude made the comment, uh, a year ago or last summer of 2007 that wouldn't it be nice if we had some creatures in here and then I think about all those people who've done good insect or small organism simulations and instead of trying to build a giant uniform scene graph with all the elements you'd ever want why don't why don't the good ant, ant simulators export their ants in some kind of XML capsule so they can go into clothes forest and be unwrapped and uh, with some kind of API or behavior layer the ants uh, can move around or the apes uh, the uh, nobilicious apes <laughs> can move around in the forest and so then suddenly uh, the apes or the ants are, are eating the leaves off the trees and there's something new there's there's something new going on in in clothes world and there's something new for uh, apes and ants and other things to do 
And, and certainly uh, the idea is very sticky. I mean, we received correspondence just this week from Ricardo Mendez, and this was, I mean, this is the original groundswell of, of interest and support from existing simulators. And I think what's really curious with regards to the idea of the Evo Grid Broad is that the life that it took on of its own when it was passed to the broader artificial life simulation community was quite phenomenal. I mean, there was an explosion. Still, there is an explosion of mailing list-related discussion whenever this topic is raised. And there are, you know, for, for every simulator, there is a different idea and a different vision in some regard. And I think what the subtlety that a lot of people have, have returned to is that it will just take a couple of simulators getting together and a large part of that is engineering. Now, I mean, I, I hope to have Larry Yeager on this call this evening primarily because I, I slated a, a good deal of time next year to actually integrate elements of, of Polyworld and Noble Ape. I think uh-huh. this has been a long time coming in some regard, but the chapter that, I've, uh, that will be published early next year in Nature Inspired Informatics contains a, a good section that both the introduction and the conclusion relating to Firstly, how um, Larry and I have both reinvented the same wheel in some regard through Noble Ape and Polyworld, but also how these two simulations have the, the perfect kind of co- competition and hybridization model kind of intertwined within it. And certainly um, I look forward to you know, some time next year uh, where I can um, d- do further integration. I think this, is, this in part returns to what we were discussing last time, Bruce, with the idea of what it is to be an artificial life hobbyist because certainly, and Gerald and I have had some candid discussion over the past months with regards to this too, a large part of these projects, these hobbyist projects, uh, have to be project managed in some quite fundamental way because time is, is a scarce commodity and this is another idea in the concept of the Evo Grid Broad that I think touched on a lot of people. I mean, certainly my original ideas with regards to implementing No Polite through an Evo Grid Broad was to create a, a prototypical XML phenotype to give a sense to the other simulators what the kind of stuff I'd like to pass out of, of Noble Ape to their particular simulations would be, how it would look. And I think that in itself generated a lot of discussion, although um, there's an interesting phenomenon currently just kind of behind the scenes with regards to the artificial life community, and I'm saddened to say that I'm not an active participant in this, but a number of the um, longer-term simulators now have small children, uh, and this is one of the, the benefits of Facebook, that you can catch up with John Klein and Dave Kerr and these kind of folk as they uh, raise their, their uh, collective little children. So a lot of the longer-term simulations who I hoped would be engaged in this kind of Evo Group broad um, collaboration, they're actually dealing with... Uh, New intelligent agents of the human variety in their in their own lives, which may cause uh, some lags. However, what interests me with regards to uh, Polyworld in particular is that it's um, the the base ideas in Polyworld are very similar to Noble Ape with regards to how the uh, agents are delimited and also the the environment. Um, so I think for an Evo Group broad style collaboration, far further than uh, just XML communication, Polyworld and Noble Ape were ideally suited. But when I talked to Gerald DeYoung, and folks who listened to the podcast will remember this, he was very sceptical with regards to what even the Evo Group Broad was trying to do because 
obviously you have questions of dimensionality, size, uh, problems of interaction. Uh, Gerald's forms have no uh, means of, of communication. They have no external world senses. Their evolution is very heavily tied to movement and movement alone. And I think that creates a, you know, a kind of a, a blind form wandering through the noble landscape. You know, how, how will the collaboration actively work? And I put to Gerald that there is, in fact, an even more subtle view with regards to the Evo Grid Broad, which is just getting simulators sharing source code. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the problem with regards to these engineering projects that are artificial life projects is that so much time is devoted to maintaining the source code. I'm doing it currently with no blape. I'm rewriting the, the, a large portion of it to be compatible uh, with the later Mac operating systems and also the iPhone. And hats off here to John Klein, who did all of this stuff with regards to Brevet, you know, three or four years ago. But these kind of general engineering problems do bog down the artificial life uh, practitioner uh, quite frequently. And I think what excites Gerald is the potential to collaborate. I mean, Gerald's talking currently with regards to planetary simulation, and certainly the legacy of the Noble Lake development has been with regards to planetary simulation as well. I passed him code previously. I'll pass him code in the future. So in terms of Evo Grid Broad being on a number of levels, Bruce, do you think I've missed any elements in my, in my broad discussion? Well, you're, you're reminding me that it was in a, an intense discussion either January or February about this, when Gerald pointed out, he said, look, you know, my Darwin at home and my simulations, they're really internal. They need a ton of high-fidelity, high-performance physics and feedback and to do what they do. And then it struck me that he was talking about something that was deep, that needed deep computation and, and a lot of it. And that actually started this whole, whole thinking process, and I have to credit Gerald for this, about the deep idea, which then came to complete fruition and flowering when I read Dick Gordon's chapter for the book, which talked about you know a programming challenge to artificial life you know, developers to do Hoyle's uh, uh, theory that if, you know you could create from a random section of junk, you could, uh, 747 would be somehow created, and that was Hoyle's uh, comments I think about 25 years ago. But basically, what what Dick Gordon was saying is, what about an artificial origin of life or an origin of artificial life? And that kind of captured my imagination because I said, you know what, that's a deep, that's that's as big an artificial life, life deep simulation as you could ever imagine because you're starting from some kind of basic building blocks and running a very, very high performance, very, very compute intensive multiprocessor hence a grid. Uh, simulation to see if something emerges from that. And you're not actually doing much engineering beyond uh, creating the environment. The engineering and the algorithms and the structures and the vesicles and whatever comes out comes out through emergent phenomena, not through your own hand. So that's how the Gerald's objection to Evil Grid Broad was led to the birth of the deep. Certainly, certainly. And behind all of this, and this is really Dick's instigation as well, there is the idea that there are people who are listening to this podcast currently who are doing either uh, later year gra uh, undergraduate or graduate courses in things that relate to artificial life. There is a, 
a super skilled generation just coming up through everything that has been written previously, plus all the Biota podcasts to date. And they, I think, will have a skill set that will be distinctly different to contemporary practitioners and may have insights into uh, these these kind of questions as well. I mean, one of the questions that I want to put to both uh, Larry Yeager and Mark Badeau when I have them on next year is how they actually look to um, skill through coursework, through potential future textbooks, all these kind of ideas the next generation because what you describe and what uh, Dick describes primarily, particularly with regards to ideas of physics and entropy and what's been discussed recently through the Bio Conversations mailing list, I mean, what, what needs to be part of the soup in order to make an artificial life simulation? To date, because the practitioners have come in from so many different areas, I mean, even the basics are still relatively controversial about what what is the bare minimum that you need to have in order to create an, a true artificial life simulation if such a thing exists. And I think this is, um, in some regard, Dick's instigation. It was also, historically, people like Brig Kleisers and the Panspermian instigation as well with regards to the idea of could you actually make true emergent behavior from a closed system, which is ultimately what Dick is, is talking about primarily in his yeah. challenge. And if I jump in here, now that Dick and I both have the Protocells book, you know, uh, Mark and Steen and, and you know, the, the book, the, the big massive $70 book, uh, Dick said, read Chapter 2, David Deemer's Chapter 2, because there he's, you know, how you can glean from what he's saying, and I know Rasmussen has done this before in Artificial Life 2 in the, the proceedings of the second conference back in the early 90s, but there, Deemer describes the basic building blocks of what he would consider a living system. And so can you please, and Vic has asked me as an assignment for, for the doctoral work, which I'm taking on, is read that chapter, extract what Deemer says, and apply that to artificial life. What would you say are those the basic building blocks, uh, the basic properties of, of an entity you would consider to be artificially alive? So there we are. Certainly. And I mean, it's a, it's a problem for the folks who are currently setting up coursework for artificial life, uh, students or people that are, are taking it as part of some university uh, qualification, how they frame that kind of problem. And I think it was interesting in one of the Thanksgiving recordings we did with regards to the artificial life curriculum, talking about the, you know, the, the many aspects of, of skilling that folks need to have before they come to develop an artificial life simulation, although I've taught generally that you don't need to necessarily have a university background in mathematics, physics, biology, philosophy, computer science, all these things are helpful, but per the ongoing discussion with folks like Gerald and Jeffrey, the way you come to these problems with regards to your kind of prior reading list and also the, um, you know, the views and beliefs that you have leading into it will ultimately frame the problem as well. And I think this is what's fascinating with regards to the idea of the Evo Group Broad as a kind of community collaboration is that there are, there are a number of levels, but one of the levels is fundamentally uh, epistemological. It's fundamentally to do with the, the knowledge baggage that each of the contributors have when they arrive at the, the question. And I think particularly through my discussion with Gerald, which has gone on for months over these, over these Biota Live recordings, what I found particularly interesting is that the, the concession from Gerald is that we have all done work which we can all benefit from. And I yeah. think this is a, an, an interesting kind of pluralist discussion. So, 
I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of nuts and bolts of what I hope to do with, with Polyworld and Noble Ape, because I think this will give some framing to other practitioners who want to do the same thing. I mean, when I look at, for example, frame, uh, Framsticks and Breve, or when I look at Framsticks and Darwin at home, I, I see a great deal of, of similar uh, collaboration. I mean, particularly with regards to visualization. So before I really dig into the, the Polyworld Noble Ape analysis, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the, the power of visualization in the Evo Group Broad project, Bruce. Well, I think visualization is sort of a double-edged sword. For me, visualization in Evo Grid Broad, I mean, all of the people who are building artificial life simulations, we are, we, you know, we are an optical visual species, and we thrive on visual uh, input. And so the visual layer is really important, and it also gives you, because of game technology primarily, you get physics engines and you get kind of the simulacrum of reality by doing frame-by-frame -frame computation of a visual scene graph. The double-edged sword, of course, is that then you're clocking the artificial life simulation down to 30 frames a second or whatever the human can deal with, and, and also burdening the, the simulation with a whole lot of what in nature is actually unnecessary stuff, which is the, the visuals, you know, or texturing objects and putting them out and doing, you know, calculating uh, polygons. Whereas in a pure artificial life simulation, kind of akin to, uh, akin to Tom Ray's Tierra, it's just sort of pure numerical simulation, it can actually get a lot more done for the computing dollar, but then it's less accessible so there, there's a trade-off in here, and the Evil Grid Broad I think of as really being a connection of visual simulations. Where the where the possible parity comes is if you think about SETI at home. SETI at home has a visual interface, but it's dealing with a massive store of data, and you only have one little window into it. So perhaps an Evil Grid Broad would would create some kind of unified. Uh, scene graph somewhere, but you only have to render and look at part of it, and it can run lights out without having to render each frame. It can run on its own. You can poke your head in. Certainly, and I mean uh, this. This is a cliche through these bios lives, but the selection pressure for artificial life developers, particularly hobbyist artificial life developers, as users, and the, su the success that Tierra had in the academic sphere was pr primarily relating to the way academic. Uh, simulations are visualized through papers. They're not as heavily visualized, obviously, as kind of popular hobbyist simulation. So really it goes hand in hand that the folks who appear on, on Biota Live and who've appeared on previous uh, Biota interviews are folks who are typically have had a, a, a visualization component to the simulations that they've developed purely because it gives amazing feedback in terms of users. I mean, I think a lot of the folk uh, probably could do their developments in complete isolation, but it's always nice to have users, and particularly users that give um, you know, great feedback in terms of motivating additional development angles and, and, and pushing the, the simulator in new directions. But I wanted to return to the nuts and bolts idea of what this, this Evo Group Broad will take, and I have skirted over the idea of the XML phenotype in some regard, primarily because it's already been discussed relatively heavily in previous 
biota lives. But the eczema phenotype is just a, an information uh, protocol, a way of describing almost a, a kind of ping, analogous to ping on the internet in terms of saying, I'm here, this is what I look like, you know, do with me as you will. The ideas of integration that I'm discussing with regards to Novolife and Polyworld are fundamentally more primary. And what I wanted to talk about initially here is the idea that code exists to describe things. And this is something which, particularly if you develop an artificial life project for a long period of time, and I look at the Polyworld code and I see code that's circa, you know, 92, 94 in terms of Larry's um, development, and that's very much in those styles. So there already exists a... a, a subset of artificial life projects that have very old legacy code. And what I'm trying, what I will do um, through the, the rewrite is, uh, in some regard, modernize a lot of that code, but also point out to Larry that it's exactly the same underlying concepts. I mean, certainly my experience with regards to Noble Ape has been a historical and continuous rewrite. In fact, Bruce and I talked uh, last weekend, and I made the point to Bruce that when I was doing the original development of Noble Ape, I also recorded a lot of my own compositions. And when I came to do a rewrite of Noble Ape when I was in Stockholm in 2000, I think 2000, 2001, uh, when I did a major rewrite of the simulation and released it all open source, it was listening to the music that I'd recorded uh, four odd years previously that brought me back to the same kind of mindset with regards to the development. But I guess, Bruce, as you're finding currently with the NERVS code, you have to, um, partially just due to contemporary compilers, I think modern compilers are relatively unforgiving to historical code, but also if you're looking to do any kind of collaboration, you're going to have to dust off old code and probably almost completely rewrite it to the point where only very simple fundamentals remain the same, but it is still the same underlying idea. So I wanted to put out in the podcast the idea that Code is not the fundamental here. It is, in fact, the ideas that motivated the writing of the code. So when you take uh, two simulations, you're, it would be very rare. And this, I mean, John Klein and I have been in correspondence for probably three or four years now with regards to me writing a, a component of uh, Brevet that was specifically tailored to Noble Ape and these kind of possible collaborations. And I think there the difficulty was always that there was such a large interface code base um, with regards to Brevo specifically, that the, the interface, and I know, Bruce, you've been on the, the Moon Monkeys project, all these kind of projects where the idea was to make the artificial life simulations almost into a library as a means of doing this kind of collaboration. So our historical legacy and experiences of these kind of projects have typically been that they don't work. You need to really get back into the raw code and write some kind of intercompatible hybridization. And the beauty of, of Polyworld of Noble Ape is that the fundamentals of the simulations are relatively simple. Now, for both Brevet and Noble Ape, the, sorry, for both Polyworld and Noble Ape, the contradiction of that relates to the cognitive simulation. And I think this is the interesting comparison that I have talked about in my nature-inspired informatics chapter. Fundamentally, Polyworld and Noble Ape are the same kind of simulation till you get to the cognitive simulation. Larry Eger has talked in great detail with regards to the time that he put into writing the neural network for Polyworld. And similarly, in Abiot Alive, I have talked in relatively great detail about the background and work that I put into the Noble Ape cognitive simulation. And I think these are the two uh, distinctions between Polyworld and Noble Ape, which also represent relatively large chunks of code. So rather than dealing with that in some regard, my interest is to kind of encapsulate the noble ape, which is the, the intelligent or simulated agent within 
noble ape. And in Polyworld, the sea monkey, and you'll see the um, comparisons already in the naming, and make those two independent agent objects that can then inhabit the same simulation space. And I think that is, well, it's relatively non-trivial, but at least it's a, a doable thing in a certain time frame. What you then find is that the, the simulation spaces, primarily where the, the sea monkeys roam and where the noble apes roam, are relatively similar. The distinctions are that noble ape has undulating surfaces, it has an idea of line of sight, it has water, uh, and it has weather. Both uh, Polyworld and Noble Ape have, I guess, what you call biological simulations. In Polyworld, it's to do with the distribution of food and other objects. In Noble Ape, similarly, but they use different algorithms. And I think what will be interesting initially is whether we can hybridize the landscape of, of Noble Ape and the weather and the water and all these kind of features, which certainly Larry is very excited about, and then potentially put the Polyworld feeding uh, in the, the kind of hybridized simulation. As you listen to this discussion, Bruce, I mean, this is obviously, you know, relatively high-level concepts, but still quite exciting in terms of the potential. I mean, what's your own thinking with regards to these kind of hybridizations? I, I'm really looking forward to seeing the first, the first one because I think everybody's going to look at that and say, boy, I could, I could connect into that system. I, I want, I want to have my efforts enriched by what these guys have done. And, and what you can see is that there's a parallel here, which is in the 1980s, there were all these disparate email systems. There were SGML-based uh, document repositories, proprietary repositories, IBM systems. It was just a hodgepodge of networks. And I think as soon as you started to see, oh, the universities are talking to the government using TCP IP and, and Ethernet, and the companies were sort of saying, yeah, but, you know, we've got much better technology. But stu very soon, you know, sort of the late 80s and into the early 90s, they're like, oh, I can route all this stuff. I can route, I can reach everybody. And uh, you just need to adopt this relatively simple protocol, and Bill put a Cisco box down there, and it'll convert from your protocol. And, and it, it happened like a thunderclap, you know, by the mid-90s, all of the, proprietary networks were subsumed. And and I think in a sense if this is like the effect that we're looking for. So if, if noble apes are encapsulated uh, and working with Polyworld or, or Darwin's Pond or stuff like this starts happening and you almost have a, have a Watson I need you moment in Alexander Graham Bell where you say, Oh, one of your creatures has just has just appeared in my world and is interacting. And when everybody sees that and they see the YouTube video of that happening, it's going to be a powerful motivator for people to join in. And that, that's my biggest excitement when that, that moment happens. Certainly. I mean, I think the difficulty with Polywalt and Noble Ape is the level of visualization in both of them. So what we've discussed already with regards to visualization, you don't necessarily see. In terms of uh, collaborative effort, the initial response is going to be fundamentally academic. But, I mean, what I put out in the nature-inspired informatics chapter is that there are all these kind of competitive metrics that can come out of this. Although I haven't actually done the, the hard work, my, my sense is that the noble apes are fundamentally fear-driven and very, very reactive, and the nature of the strategic movement is ultimately based on this kind of fear reaction, whereas the uh, polyworld sea monkeys have quite a detailed and slowly adapting neural network. And I think what will come out of this 
is almost a, um, a psychology of the two uh, simulated entities, although obviously this will push Larry Yeager in a direction that he doesn't necessarily want to go from our last uh, chat with him. But I think these kind of things will come out. Certainly what I say in Nature Inspired Informatics is that I think there's a great potential for hybridizing the cognitive simulations of Nova Life and Polyworld and actually uh, getting in some regard the best of both worlds, perhaps uh, some kind of fear motivator that has the broader neural network behind it or potentially even the ability to put something like uh, Ken Stanley's NEAT or other neural network models in or actually use it for what I originally hoped Nobelite would be used for, which is a testing of all these kind of uh, philosophical computer science AI brain models that seem to be coming together in an environment which has obviously um, proven itself in some regard as a test bed for these kind of ideas. So I think initially what will come out of this kind of collaboration will probably be far more exciting and esoteric within the um, existing artificial life community. But I think what happens in a, in a longer-term sense is that, uh, firstly, there's the potential for visualizers to get involved, folks that have uh, a background with regards to uh, contemporary and uh, even future visualization methods, the ability for uh, artists and other collaborative folk to get involved. And I think because Larry and I have come to it from distinctly different perspectives, uh, you know, I have an existing Noble Ape user base, Larry has an existing uh, group of, uh, you know, Polyworlds users, and certainly I think there's good fit there. I also feel this way with regards to uh, both John Klein and Dave Kerr. I mean, Dave Kerr's user base for uh, AI Planet in particular is uh, phenomenal and the, the world over. I mean, Dave Kerr has done through visualization what we have been talking about for uh, for years with regards to other artificial life simulations. And his visualization is very similar to Jerem's kind of cutesy, cartoony uh, thing that fits in very well with the kind of uh, anime cultures and these kind of things. But, you know, there, there are users there. There are folks that are interested in that. And the potential for, um, as you say, the momentum to build for other simulators to get involved for the potential for additional visualization. But I think what's interesting when you describe the idea of the email protocols is that these were fundamentally very simple protocols. And what will interest me through doing these kind of collaborations is whether we do actually fundamentally simplify or whether what we do through the hybridization is actually create what I think is probably more exciting for folks like Dick Gordon and even people like Justin Lane, which is a new kind of simulation science, a, a series of new metaphors, a series of new uh, mathematics and new ideas which can then you know, motivate uh, Larry's future students and the future folk at, who are going through at Sussex and these kind of people to get involved with these kind of collaborations. As you look at the kind of contemporary artificial life community, Bruce, do you think this will be a kind of greater motivator if uh, if we have a kind of Novalite polyworld hybrid? Or I mean, do you think this is going to be a broader motivator to other members in the community either to, to cross-collaborate or, or join the slowly growing um, intelligent agent ape community, for want of a better description? I mean, do you see that happening? I do see it happening, and I see a number of, of, of uh, artificial life. I, I think that what will happen if, if, say, a really cool YouTube video is made of, of, of the Watson, come here, I need you moment, uh, you're going to find uh, artificial life developers that we don't even know about uh, raising their hands and coming in and maybe downloading the protocol or the XML spec and exporting. You know, what, what would be great is 
you may not even know who they are, and they, they export something into the XML spec and put it in a container somewhere on, online, a pool. And you say, somebody's just generated something we can now pick up. We don't even know the source. They've just said, here, here's a present from, from my artificial life environment. And then you might say, well, here's how it's doing. And then they'll say, well, here, here's my project. You know, that kind of thing will be very cool if it happens. Certainly. And, I mean, you've really given the genesis to both these EvoGrid uh, broad and EvoGrid deep ideas, but I see certainly with your PhD work you're getting more heavily involved with the EvoGrid deep, primarily, I think, also because this EvoGrid broad is just so sticky that, you know, if, if folks like Larry Yeager and myself start collaborating or Gerald DeYoung and John Klein and Dave Kerr and if, if Jeffrey releases uh, Dawkins' puddle, I mean, I think the potential for the Evo Group Broad to almost run itself without someone necessarily at the helm is there. Is this the way you, you see it with regards to your own involvement with Evo Group Broad versus Evo Group Deep? Yeah, exactly. I think the Evo Group Broad is a thing, it's a thing of a distributed community. It's partnerships, people, as you say, the idea is sticky, and somebody cogitating on the idea for long enough and saying, calling, ringing somebody else up and saying, let's try this, I'm going to send you something. And then others do it. it. It's a collective action. And the only thing that I I can really contribute is just sort of uh, is championing the idea and trying to explain it in really clear terms, as we've done for about a year now. And it seems to be catching on. And the EvoGrid uh, broad is, is a bit of a risky proposition for a PhD project because it's so dependent on so many variables. Um, if it starts to be successful in the next year or two, I'll write it up and say, this is an activity that I helped initiate, and I'll study it. I'll study what is going on, and it'll, be a, it'll actually be a significant part of the research, the studies of what has happened, you know, the people and maybe looking at the statistical shifts in these simulations as a result of them being gridded or connected. But in general, it's, it's a little bit risky because um, it relies on other people doing, doing things. And for a PhD, I've got to meet a timetable of, of deliverables. Certainly. Uh, and I mean, similarly, I, I feel this way with regards to it as well. I mean, by having, having published two chapters this year, my hope was to publish two chapters next year as well and kind of maintain that momentum of, of professional publication. But I think getting involved with something like the EvoGrid Broad will take such a large portion of my time. And also I, I'm at the stage of a, a major rewrite for Apple as well. So as a, as a practitioner as well as a communicator in this field, I find um, you know my own time is, is relatively uh, scarce. But when I devote it to these kind of projects, it needs to almost be through a, a project-managed fashion. And I think what will the potential of what will come through this will be just as powerful in some regard as professional publication because you will get uh, a kind of lazing of the folk that uh, obviously Larry can bring in and also the folk that I can bring in too. And I think from that, certainly papers will be published and the potential of communicating these ideas in a very fundamental level will be uh, equal, if not better, uh, than you know an occasional publication. But in, just in terms of time frames, this is a non-trivial effort, and I wanted to make this point very clear to the community that the reason that there has been so much discussion associated with this is that people want to 
you know, clear in their own minds, basically, the kind of time commitment that they'll need to put in to uh, this kind of collaboration and also the kind of risk-benefit analysis that you just discussed, Bruce. And I think my own thinking is that the only way forward, aside from doing this kind of communication through something like Biota Live, is through the practitioners to actually, you know, roll up their sleeves and start doing this kind of collaboration. I think it's a way of moving the narrative forward very rapidly in terms of what we're all trying to do with artificial life and show that this isn't just a pie-in-the-sky dream. It was interesting when Eric Burton was on, and this will actually be the audio that's released uh, towards the end of the year, um, because he talks about hybridizing fram sticks and Avida. And my sense is that there are probably super users in the community that are already trying to do uh, these kind of experiments, but to do it in a very formal uh, and, and, you know, methodological and slow processed manner is something which uh, in itself will generate, I think, a lot of uh, ideas and a lot of assistive feedback for folks such as uh, Gerald and other folks who are interested now in collaborating their time to these kind of projects. I don't necessarily see Evo Grid uh, broad and Evo Grid deep in being in competition because I think certainly the, there is a, a very clear shared philosophy. For folks listening to this podcast and thinking these almost seem like two separate projects, I mean, what would, what would you describe the unifying philosophy between Evo Grid broad and Evo Grid deep as being, Bruce? Well, it's actually really interesting because if you pull back and you say, what if we had you know, a dozen or 50 or 100 uh, different artificial life environments all connected exchanging objects. And what if, what if at the same time we had, uh, you know, 10,000 computers running an emergent phenomenon simulation in, in, in the deep idea? Well, actually, you're going to get the same kind of thing. You're going to get tremendous emergent phenomena. You're starting with a little bit of a leg up with Evo Grid Broad because You've got all these different selection pressures of users and environments, and the building blocks maybe are more complex. And so you may see interesting emergent phenomena in the broad much sooner than you do in the deep. But the deep the deep is a proof for the skeptics. It's a proof for the pure biologists or the Darwinists or whoever you might, or the, the true skeptics, that uh, the, the hand of the engineer did not make this. And so the... One of them will, will show tremendous emergent phenomena and complex entities. The other one may show emergent phenomena and fairly simple entities, but one was done in a more controlled way as far as they were concerned, more scientific. So, so that's really, but in the end, all you're after is, uh, is things you can wonder at. You can say, well, look at what emerged from here that was not built by the hand. Uh, bits of it might have been built by hands of people, but what's come out is something greater. Certainly. It is, it is very much this idea of the gestalt, although I certainly wouldn't downplay the amount of extreme engineering that will be no doubt needed in order to construct Evo Grid Deep as well. I mean, I think the, the nature of these kind of projects is that you can never really see where you are until you've actually come pretty close to the end if they ever actually do conclude it really, I mean, you're at the process currently where you're you're rolling up your sleeves, Bruce. I mean, with only three minutes remaining, can you can you give some outline to you know what the next couple of months will mean in terms of what you're doing with your PhD in the Evo Grid? Yeah, I have to do a lot of reading, but I also um, last weekend I got the Nerves Code from 1995 
built, and I started making changes to it. And so now the, the goal that Peter Newman and I have is I'm going to be passing him pointers to data structures that he can then use in digital spaces, which is our open source uh, 3D framework we built with NASA support, uh, to show what I call a cube of, a cube of bouncing balls, um, something very, very beginning steps of showing uh, particles of different properties moving around in some way, really just a demonstration. Uh, and that has to be done all by February, middle of February. Wow. So you've got you've got your work cut out for you in the next few months, basically. Yeah, and of course, I, before we run out of time, I want to congratulate Tom for being in a new space, a new living and working space. Well, thank you. It's uh, it's pure luxury. In fact, it's quite overwhelming in some regard. But uh, I'm mean, I'm hoping that we'll have Robert Rice through at least for an interview and possibly even possibly even you, Bruce, in the in the near future because. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's a real luxury uh, to be here and, and quite overwhelming to have little things like my books laid out in the library and these kind of things. So with a minute remaining, I need to wrap things up. I need to thank everyone. Firstly, those who participated in the past year's Biota Lives. It's been truly overwhelming. We've recorded a lot of audio. A lot of great ideas have gotten out there. And I'd also like to thank the listening audience because you folks are contributing. And please remember uh, my initial requests at the start of this podcast with regards to folks emailing me, tom at noble8.com, with regards to ideas for next year because I hope to get a lot more folk involved, but also the existing participants have been extremely, extremely insightful and wonderful, and certainly a lot of, uh, lot of deep conversation has come through this. Thank you very much for the chance of, to chat with you once again this evening, Bruce. My pleasure.